Hi everybody, you're listening to the Heredity Podcast, and I'm Mike Pointer. 70% of the Earth's surface is ocean, and as a terrestrial organism, as well as a terrestrial biologist, I find it embarrassingly easy to underestimate the beauty and complexity of marine ecosystems compared to the land-based environments that I know and love. Today's guests are involved in research that's not only helping us to understand the marine environment, but showing that some of the eco-evolutionary patterns we're very familiar with from the land are also evident in the sea. As a disclaimer, in line with the global nature of modern science, we were doing some very international recording this episode, and in addition to me having to get up very early, we had some connection and sound issues. I've done what I can, but please forgive any remaining messiness in the recordings. Hi, thanks very much for joining me. Would you please start off by telling us who you are and what you do? Hi, Mike. Um, my name is Max Hirschfeld, and I'm a marine ecologist and associated researcher at the Galapagos Science Center. I've been working in the Galapagos since 2010, so over a decade ago, and I've been studying a range of marine species, including marine iguanas, sea lions, sea turtles, and sharks. And also using a variety of research methods, including animal tracking, population health assessment, and more recently, population genetics and genomics. So when I started my PhD at James Cook University in Australia with my supervisors Adam Barnett and Marcus Sheaves, I also met Christine, who you'll meet in a minute, and who became a supervisor and mentor, and who also opened uh, this door to the world of population genetics and genomics for me. Hi, my name's Chris Dudgeon. I'm a research fellow with the University of Queensland, and um, I've been working uh, essentially addressing questions of the origins and maintenance of biodiversity, particularly of sharks, rays, and bony fish, and its applications to wildlife management. Uh, I've been working with some species such as the Indo-Pacific leopard shark for the last 20 years off Australia and also uh, more widely. I'm particularly interested in population genetic patterns in smaller shark species, um, particularly like these benthic sharks that we'll be talking about today. And would you just introduce us to the study system? What's interesting about it and what interesting questions does it throw up? So the Galapagos Islands are this evolutionary playground, you could say, and in combination with a small benthic shark, this really provides an incredible study system. Um, the Galapagos Islands are separated from the South American coast by approximately 1,000 kilometers of up to 2,000 meter deep ocean. And they have been shaped by the movement of the Nazca tectonic plate over the Galapagos volcanic hotspot, which resulted in the sequential formation of volcanic islands and a very complex steep bathymetry between individual islands. And this has happened over the course of millions of years. So what we find now is that younger islands are located in the west. Some of them are still active volcanoes. And older islands are drowning in the sea towards the east. But at the same time, this constellation of individual islands has also changed in the last hundreds of thousands of years due, due to changing sea levels caused by fluctuations in global climate. And the Galapagos bullhead shark, our study species, are very small sharks. The largest individuals that we found in the field were up to 70 centimeters only. 
And we could say they're quite poor swimmers. They spend most of the time on or close to the ocean floor and in very shallow water, less than 40 meters deep. And yet somehow they have made it uh, to the Galapagos Islands to colonize these remote oceanic islands in also a colonized individual islands within the archipelago. So naturally we would ask ourselves how and when did these sharks get to the archipelago? And now are they genetically distinct from their mainland relatives and have the populations within the Galapagos archipelago, so in different on different islands, split into genetic groups. So similar to the fate that we've seen in terrestrial animals and plants that have previously colonized the Galapagos and are now endemic species. And what were the aims of this specific study? So based on this background setting, um, our specific questions for the study were to examine if ocean depth between islands is a barrier to the movements and the exchange of genetic information in the small shallow water shelf. And if so, how did the geologic formation and also the changes in historical sea levels influence gene flow in the past? And finally, we wanted to see what are the genetic and biogeographic consequences for bullhead shark populations that we can observe today. So I imagine the next step was getting some samples. So how did you go about that? Yeah, I think uh, Chris would agree with me that in many of the shark uh, studies uh, using genetics and population genetics, genomics, researchers depend on very opportunistic sampling to obtain samples. So often they're from fisheries or, you know, from bycatch in fisheries or from a variety of collaborators and collections collected over years. And I think our study is special in that sense that we really set out to follow a very specific sampling scheme and particularly shaped to respond to our research questions. And so we went to um, locations on islands that uh, separate by different levels of ocean depth and also represent different sizes of islands and different ages. And we started searching for Galapagos bullhead sharks during research expeditions in 2015 and were sampling between 2015 and 2018. Because the species is more active at night and the majority of the dives were conducted during the night, I think it's also special in this study that we didn't use any fishing methods to capture the sharks, but we're doing everything during scuba diving. So all the handling of the animals and sampling was uh, happening underwater, including taking tissue samples, taking blood samples, and also photographs with the laser reference. And all of that would happen in very few minutes, and the shark is released in the same spot where it was captured. That sounds like an amazing, crazy adventure, but also like quite a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a lot of hard work. Um, the water temperature was often very cold and uh, long night dives uh, are very exhausting. And coming up to an old fishing vessel and uh, being very cold at night was quite challenging for me and also some of the volunteers that would join me on those dives. And Max, you uh, had set up a fairly substantial citizen science project prior to doing that sampling to get information on where to target the species as well. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I think one story that I'd really like to tell is that at the beginning of the study, we really didn't know much about the species at all. And even some of the local uh, Galapagos residents that 
spend a lot of time in the ocean, didn't know much about the species, either because the species is quite hard to see and they prefer colder waters uh, and are nocturnal, so they're much harder to observe. Or a lot of people would just focus, I guess, on very big charismatic species such as whale or hammerhead shark. And um, I think a nice anecdote is that one time I had presented something about this project at the initial stages and to an audience at a local conference and one of uh, more seasoned dive guides uh, came up to me after the presentation and he said, Max, I think this sharks own, <laughs> these, those sharks only exist in your imagination. So this was sort of our starting point <laughs> of the study. So with the help of citizen scientists and interviews to local dive guides, fishermen, and also national park rangers, we were able to start collecting more and more information and narrowing down where we could really find this species. Yeah, that's great. It's nice to hear a slightly more human side of the story and to get some colour around the project so it's not all reed depth and FST outliers. The field-based and sampling part of these projects is often where a huge amount of their effort is invested and that can all get lost in the final paper when it's focused on the output of the research. I just... Could I just add to um, what Max was saying before with the sampling design? So in studies on sharks, genetic studies on sharks, sort of mostly a lot of that has been focused on fisheries animals, um, so animals that are targeted by fisheries and uh, or maybe yeah, incidentally caught by fisheries. So there are fewer studies that are examining animals such as this where they're not the focus of any commercial fisheries as such. Uh, so it's a different way of approaching a shark research program with the genetics because you can be more targeted with your sampling design and balanced with the sampling design rather than you know reliant upon what's being captured um, and what's available through, through fisheries programs. How did you use the data that you generated to address the research questions? Max. <laughs> uh, yep, I can go. <laughs> so for this study, we were able to sample a total of 182 sharks from nine locations on six islands. And as previously mentioned, I think it's very important that we had very similar sample sizes from different islands that represent different size and different age of the islands and also have different levels of ocean depths between them. And we also included locations on the same island uh, that were connected by a continuous coastline, so they kind of can account for genetic isolation by distance alone. And we used next-generation sequencing, so we ended up with uh, about nine, over 9,000 high-quality SNPs or singing nucleotide polymorphisms after filtering for data quality. We added... For our analysis, a high-resolution bathymetry data, so a spatial layer of the underwater underwater topography between islands, and we use the so-called isolation by resistance resistance approach, which takes into account that island configuration has changed in the past with the rise and fall of historical sea levels. And finally, we used a paleogeographic model describing the formation of the Galapagos Archipelago to sort of explore the relationship between spatial genetic patterns and the progressive formation of islands. 
And to further examine the potential consequences of geographic isolation between individual islands, we estimated the genetic effect of population size. Can I jump in on uh, something just to talk about generating the um, single nucleotide polymorphism data for this study? So we used a DDRAD approach um, through a company called Diversity Race in Australia that has that provide a, a, a similar approach where this is essentially genotyping by sequencing. Um, so we don't, with another challenge with many shark uh, and ray studies or chondrichnium studies, is these animals have very big genomes. We're talking many gigabases. So there are very few species with well annotated whole genomes that have been sequenced. So for the vast majority of our studies, um, we, we essentially are starting from scratch and we're working in a non-model um, organism space. And, and so that's why this more DD-RAD approach is, is really the best tool that we have at the moment um, to be able to essentially randomly find, you know, a lot of SNP variation across the genome uh, to provide us with many thousands of loci to do these studies. Yeah, that's a great point. It's good to remind those of us that do work with model organisms how lucky we are. So you're looking to identify relatedness between sampling locations and then use the information that you have about distances, about ocean depths and island configurations now and over geological time to see whether one of these or some combination of them best explains the genetic patterns. And now we get to the juicy bit. What did you find out? So what did we find? First of all, we found that ocean depth between islands is actually a strong barrier to dispersion, and they result in the isolation of individual genetic groups that can roughly be attributed to individual islands. And we found that the paleogeographic formation of islands suggests that uh, these barriers were formed through a sequential separation of individual islands from a central island cluster in the past. And what's interesting that such patterns have been suggested for terrestrial species in the Galapagos, such as giant tortoises, but not previously in marine species. We also found that the isolation by resistance approach that we used showed us that historical changes in sea levels changed inter-island connectivity and left their mark on the genetic patterns that we found. So... This flickering connectivity has been known from high-altitude ecosystems and has also recently been suggested to affect genetic connectivity and biogeography in terrestrial species and islands. But based on our results, we would suggest that this mechanism of flickering connectivity also shapes genetic patterns in marine organisms that live in shallow water and have limited ability to move over large distances and deep ocean. And finally, as a consequence of these evolutionary processes, we found that effective population size scaled with the amount of island habitat available. And such patterns have only been found in terrestrial island biota so far. Since the most isolated islands showed really low effective population sizes, for example, in the case of Espanola Island, the oldest and most isolated, there was an NE effective population size of around 350. So we can say that these local populations may be more vulnerable to extinction 
to local extinction because they are prone to inbreeding and they lack replenishment from any population on other islands. And do you have anything to add to that, Chris? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so one of the interesting uh, things to consider in this respect is the uh, you know the process of essentially colonization. So the genetic patterns we found here seem to suggest a more vicarious process where in some other small benthic animals, so work we've done on, say, epaulet or walking sharks in, in the tropics suggests it's more of a founder event. So the animals have moved into these new habitats. It's an interesting area to explore further because we also don't know, like Max said before, how did these sharks get to the Galapagos from the mainland, from Peru? Um, and there's no islands to sort of hop across to get there, which kind of suggests that perhaps they can swim. There's a congeneric species, the Port Jackson shark in Australia, which has uh, been shown through electronic tagging to be able to swim uh, many hundreds of kilometres, but not over very deep water. So, you know, if that deep water is indeed a barrier for them, it's a, it's a really great mystery as to how did they get to the Galapagos in the first place. And we're seeing that persistence of those, you know, um, evolutionary units or ecological units, perhaps still now, um, in those different island groups. Uh, so as we can see that those older islands are sort of starting to collapse a little bit more, probably more impacted by climate change and have the smaller population sizes, then that you know has big implications for the persistence of this species going into the future. And yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting to explore more about their ecology and their capacity to move as well, which is a complete gap in knowledge at the moment. So if you had to distill the results down into one bullet point for people to take away from the study, what would that be? Well, for, for me personally, I, what I find really fascinating about this paper are the parallels between what we see in the marine environment with these bullhead sharks to uh, some of these you know, classic evolutionary terrestrial systems um, in, the, in the Galapagos. And I'm particularly interested in these smaller benthic species, as mentioned before, with the idea that the sharks tend to have, you know, bigger young and more side attached as juveniles. And so this reproductive system has big implications for, for their genetics. But when we study some of these larger, more migratory species, a lot of those patterns are blurred because particularly if we're sampling large migratory sharks, we don't necessarily know where in their migration they are. So we might be sampling them from one location that's 2,000 kilometres away from the location where they were actually born. So when we, when we examine these smaller benthic species, we can actually start to sink our teeth into some more interesting evolutionary questions as well because we can tease out some of those patterns of genetics that are perhaps obscured from the ecology of the animals now in their big migratory movements. And we're starting to explore that in a few of these different benthic species, which I think is really interesting. 
So what I find really important to take home from the study is that maybe at first glance, for some people that are not so familiar with the system, is that it seems a bit of an isolated example. But when we think about the fact that the highest biodiversity and biomass in the ocean can be found in the upper layer, so the photic zone, and that marine organisms have very diverse life histories with many species having limited capacity to move over larger distances and deeper water, we can come to the conclusion that although our example of the Galapagos pulhachar is quite unique in the literature so far, Many similar scenarios exist in nature, but just haven't been studied yet. And I can just mention a few examples, such as the Peruvian torpedo ray in the Galapagos, which is another benthic ray species that has colonized the islands. And there are similar examples, such as angel shark in the Canary Islands and California bullhead sharks in the Channel Island archipelago. So these are examples, but there's many other species that might be very interesting study systems in the future. And finally, I'm quite glad to say that some of the research has already had some real-world impact. For example, it was used in the creation of uh, spatial guides that are openly available and to be used in management of marine protected areas, thanks to the collaboration of the Galapagos National Park and the IUCN Important Shark and Ray Areas Project. And currently, at the moment, uh, this information is also considered during the revision of the Galapagos Marine Reserve Zone Scheme. Um, I would really like to thank uh, my supervisors for the guidance during this research and this study. And I would especially like to thank my friends um, from the Galapagos National Park, um, Juan Garcia, and uh, the local fisherman and conservation Manuel Yepes, or Manulo, for their help and enthusiasm searching for bullhead sharks and sharing their local knowledge. I would also really like to thank our partner, the Galapagos Conservation Trust, and the Rafa Foundation for their support and funding during this research endeavor. Michael, from your perspective, um, what do you think is interesting about this study? Oh, turning the tables on me. So... As a terrestrial evolutionary ecologist myself, and I suppose just as a terrestrial being that doesn't dive and doesn't really see under the sea, it's easy to think about the marine environment as just one big body of water that doesn't show the same complexity as the land. And to be shown that the exact same pretty small scale population dynamic processes that I'm used to thinking about in my beetles or in birds or whatever, are just as important in these marine organisms is it's really cool to see that yeah i guess if you if you don't sort of spend time looking underwater it it may seem to be this kind of ubiquitous landscape but i i would almost picture it that if you're looking out over a terrestrial landscape with some mountains and valleys just picture that with water in it and you have the same sorts of things. So you'll have, you know, your equivalents of trees and birds like flying around and, and doing those things. And then the animals that are a bit more sedentary and attached to the bottom. Some of those things that will, will be, you know, completely attached and can't go anywhere and will spawn and release into, into 
either the water column or the air or other things such as perhaps lizards, you know, the equivalent that are are going to just have a little habitat or a little patch um, where they stay. So I, I tend to visualize it like that, that it's, it's almost just flipping it that we've got that terrestrial landscape, but just fill it with water rather than air. And you can bring a lot of those same concepts over. Fantastic. Great to see that this work is already feeding into conservation programs. Would you finish off by reminding us of the title of the paper and maybe say something about how you came upon this title. The title of our study is What Darwin Could Not See, Island Formation and Historical Sea Level Shaped Genetic Divergence and Island Biogeography in a Coastal Marine Species. And the idea behind this title is that most of our knowledge on evolution and biogeography in Oceanic Island is based on land animals and plants. And this started with the famous visit of Charles Darwin to the Galapagos Islands. But back in the days, Darwin didn't have the technology of modern scuba gear or high-resolution genomics. And therefore, at the time, he couldn't really study the evolution that's happening or has been affecting marine elements in the Galapagos. Perfect. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. As usual, you can find Max and Christine's paper on the Heredity website at nature.com forward slash hdy. While you're there, you can also find out all the information on how to submit your own papers to the journal and or follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to your friends, colleagues, students as appropriate and or give us a review in your podcast app. I'm Mike Pointer. Thanks for listening.